Good morning, Montview Church. What a wonderful Sunday this is. Um, welcome to those of you who are first-time worshipers with us. Uh, this is a special Sunday because, well, first, my colleague, Pastor Ian Cummins, is back from a three-month sabbatical. Ian is rested and refreshed and ready to work. <laughs> um, this morning, there is a second reason this is such a special morning. As we shared with you in an email this past week, um, that we responded, um, our church responded to an urgent request from the Metro Denver Sanctuary Coalition and First Unitarian Society of Denver. Our session discerned that we were indeed called by God to provide interim sanctuary for a brother in Christ, Jorge, and his lovely full family who are here this morning. Entering, entering sanctuary was Jorge's last option to seek safety in what uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement calls um, a sensitive location, which is a religious congregation or school or hospital. And the gui ICE uh, guidelines indicate that uh, the person is less likely to obtain um, deportation in these sensitive locations. Jorge, along with hundreds of other persons turning to this last resort, uh, with more than 1,000 congregations around the country, uh, they need to meet stringent criteria. We need to meet stringent criteria for sinking sanctuary um, within this interfaith ministry movement. Uh, those seeking sanctuary must be in the legal process and under an order of deportation. Um, have U.S. citizen children, a good work record, a viable case under law. And in Jorge's case, he is married to Christina, a U.S. citizen, and his children are U.S. citizens. We just want to be clear that sanctuary congregations do not harbor fugitives. Rather, sanctuary congregations offer a safe place to stay while openly sharing the identity and location of their guests with government officials. Indeed, the prophetic justice seeking witness of Montmue Church, the centuries of Christian teaching on offering hospitality to the sojourner and the stranger, and the First Amendment's free exercise of religion allows us to offer this kind of prophetic hospitality and transparency. It's important for us to provide this background information to you because we want to share with you that Jorge did enter sanctuary in our church this past week. And 
with grateful hearts, we found out the very next morning that he learned from his legal team that he received a six-month stay, an extension of his deportation. This means that um, Jorge returned home to his family, to Christina, his children and grandchildren, and he will continue his 13-year uh, journey to become a citizen. We feel incredibly blessed to have offered this act of hospitality to a brother in Christ, even for about 12 hours. <laughs> we were a sanctuary church. Um, and I want to offer our gratitude to Montview Sanctuary Task Force, um, our coalition partners, the session, the staff, and all the volunteers who quickly and faithfully mobilized into action within six days. Um, it is clear that the Spirit is doing a new thing in our midst. The Sanctuary Task Force invites us to continue in prayerful discernment about how we might be called into sanctuary ministry and what that might look like. But I'd like to introduce to you um, Jorge and his spouse, Christina, and their family, and they wanted to offer a few words to us. Good morning, everybody. Um, uh, we would like to thank you on behalf of our family. Um, we do have five children. They're all U.S.-born citizens. Um, our grandson, our son-in-law, and numerous friends and family who also share the gratitude with you guys, your guys' sanctuary establishment, giving us the space for 12 hours. Prior to those 12 hours, our whole family didn't sleep since the 11th of July. If you can picture somebody telling you that they reserve the right to come to your home and take your husband, your wife, your child at any given time because they found him at work, they seen him coming home, or they stopped him at Safeway, that's what we were told on the 11th, that his stay was over and they reserved the right to come for him at any moment, which put us into quick action of don't answer the doors, don't open the windows, stay safe, make sure everybody has been retrained because our way of life now is no more. And so we had to sit for two agonizing weeks waiting to hear from the coalition, the sanctuary. We've been fighting his case for 13 years for his residency. Um, in 2005, we started the process with the I-130 and in 2008, under the Show Me Your Papers law, he got a deportation case put on him, which is what we're fighting now. So it's been 13 years for his residency, 10 years fighting a deportation case, and well over $100,000, if you guys can believe that we've paid that much in legal fees and form fees and fees just paying out to keep him here. So we were very grateful when we got the response from Jason and the other 11 people who were sitting on the team that one day on the 31st of July, I truly believe that our destinies were written before we were even born. And so for that moment in time, I had been strong the full 13 years with support from my community. 
And when me and my daughter came on the 31st, I truly felt like I was being lifted by the fellow 11 who were joining us in that room, who took quick action on behalf of all of you. So I, we're truly grateful for that. And it wasn't just 12 hours. It was 12 hours we were able to be at peace and to relax and to give our kids reassurance that maybe we do have one more chance. And so all of us pulling together really gave us the opportunity to stay together and be here in front of you guys today to give thanks to you and to our Almighty who has given us the strength to pull from the depths of our heart to know that you guys are doing such great work and not just for this one family it's there's there's millions of us out there who have fought for so long and sanctuary is our last call for many of us so thank you guys so much we appreciate it from the bottom of our hearts to the coalition sanctuary and to the people here at the methodist church and to everybody involved who helped us make it this long. So we hope to continue participating with you all if you guys will have us. Thank you. Yeah. I say only thank you all the congregation and all the people right now. I will speak a little bit of English then. Spanish is my first language, so I want to tell, uh, tell everybody thank you for giving me a one night. I appreciate for all continuing all this stuff for all the immigrants, and thank you. With that, I encourage you, there are so many announcements, so many good things going on. Please take a close look at your insert, um, take advantage of the wonderful things, read carefully, and we invite you to um, uh, respond to the good things going on in the congregation. Let us gather our hearts together and stand as you are able to worship God.
Let us come, all the doubters, the faith-filled, the simple, the powerless, the well-meaning, and the foolish. Let us confess that the source of our life is Christ Jesus, and it is in him that we find peace, mercy, and gentle reconciliation with God. Let us begin our confession in a time of silence. Let us join together in the corporate confession. Forgive us, O God, our entitled self-deception that allows us to so easily abuse our power and justify our greed. Christ, have mercy. Here is the good news. God is with us, not against us. God sent the Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be reconciled to God through love and peace and mercy. But our challenge is this. Can we believe that we have been freed to love God, to love our neighbor, and to love ourselves? Friends, believe the good news. In Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Amen. God, who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, loves you just as you are. So just as you are, as ministers of that same peace, turn to one another and extend the peace of Christ. The peace of the Lord be with you.
Good morning, children. We're having you come all the way up on the stairs, all the way up, because you're going to have a front row seat for our baptism this morning. This morning, we're having both sacraments, the baptism and the Lord's Supper, and we invited the children to come see what's happening here. Where's my, okay, yeah, here, good, yeah, okay, here. good. I thought you left again. <laughs> I'm out, yeah. With those who present themselves for baptism, would you please come forward? Sisters and brothers in Christ, in baptism, God claims us and seals us with this water to show that we belong to God. Uniting us with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, God frees us from sin and from death. By water and the Holy Spirit, we are welcomed to Christ's church, and so let us remember with joy our own baptism this morning. <laughs> Carrie, do you desire that your child be baptized? If so, please say, I do. And relying on God's grace, do you promise to live the Christian faith and to teach that faith to your child? If so, please say, I do. And to the sponsors, you guys and anyone else here. Do you promise, through prayer and example, to support and encourage Everest to be a faithful Christian? If so, please say, I, we do. Do we, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ, promise to guide and nurture Everest by word and deed with love and prayer, encouraging her to know and follow Christ and to be a faithful member of this church? If so, please answer, we do. We do. Please, please stand as you are able as we confess our faith. In life and in death, we belong to God. Through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit, we trust in the one triune God, the Holy One of Israel, whom alone we worship and serve. We trust in Jesus Christ, fully human, fully God. We trust in God, whom Jesus called Abba, Father. We trust in the Holy Spirit, everywhere the giver and renewer of life. We use in every time and place. We rejoice that nothing in life or in death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Glory be to the Creator and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, throughout history you have nourished and sustained us and all living things through the gift of water. From the time of creation to your own baptism in the waters of Jordan to this moment, you invite us into the loving relationship with you. We thank you for the gift of life and for the gift of Everest. And she is as she is marked with his water, seal her with your covenant of presence and grace. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon her and upon these waters that this font may be the womb of new birth, giving her the power to do your will and live forever the risen life in Christ, through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Amen. You may be seated. Carrie, what is the Christian name of this child? Hi, sweet girl. Hey, look at that. No problem. Everest, I baptize you in the name of God, the Creator, in the name of Jesus, the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. You are God's child. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit as Christ's own forever. Amen. See what great love God has for us, that we are called children of God. You are, you're easy, totally easy. Look at these children. Easy, easy. Mom, come on. Look at sweet girl. of Everest Emily is now inscribed in the book of the church together with all of our names. Let us remember with joy that God is the giver of all life and knows each of us by name. This candle represents the new life in Christ. It is entrusted to you to be kept burning brightly. May Everest and all who have received this sacrament walk as children of the light and may God keep the flame of faith alive in them forever. With joy and thanksgiving, we welcome you into Christ's church to share with us this ministry, for we are all one in Christ. Let us pray together the prayer for illumination found in your bulletin. May your holy word fall fresh upon our lives, inspiring us to live with faith and compassion. Amen. Our first lesson is 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 5 found on pages 263 and 264 in your Old Testament Pew Bible. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, 
David sent Joab and his officers and all of Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to fetch her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Listen to the voice of the Spirit speaking to the church. Thanks be to God. Our second lesson this morning continues the story of David and Bathsheba. Upon learning this, David tries to convince Joab, sorry, Uriah, to return and to sleep with his wife to cover what he has done. When that doesn't work, in verse 14 and 15, we read that in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. And this is what happens, in fact, and then we pick up our lectionary passage for the morning, starting with verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, and the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had, which he had bought, and he had brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. So he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. And then David's anger was greatly kindled against this man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, that man, what he has done, deserves to die, that he shall restore the lamb fourfold because of this thing he has done and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, 
You are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added much more. Why? Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. For you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up trouble against you from within your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this very son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the son. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. May God add a blessing to our understanding of our scripture. Would you pray with me? Lord, center us this morning and open us to your word for us this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, now we'll get to that. Hang on. If you were here eight years ago, when I came back from my first sabbatical, you will know that there was a name change involved. How many of you were here back then? How many know? Oh, good. Okay. Explain it to those who, who weren't here. <laughs> well, apparently the staff has been taking bets on what new name I would come back with. <laughs> They're funny, aren't they? So funny. So funny. So let's get this out of the way. I will be sticking with Ian this time. Although, given that part of my sabbatical uh, was spent building a boat, I did think of demanding that everyone call me Noah from now on. The boat is finished, by the way, but it's still in Georgia. UPS wants $800 to ship it back, so we're going to find another way to get it here. So I'll, I'll give you updates. Anyway, I had a, a wonderful uh, time away, very restful, and I want to thank all of you. Uh, for supporting sabbaticals. I want to thank my co-pastor and my colleagues for all the extra work. Um, although I did hear last week you hardly noticed I was gone. Is that right? <laughs> all right. We have a lot of ground to cover today, so let's dig in. This story of Bathsheba and David could have been pulled from the script of a soap opera. It's a story of lust and lies, scandal, murder, and perhaps most of all, it's about power. David, as king, wields enormous power. He wanted Bathsheba, so he took her. Uriah was in his way, so he killed him. But what David had done, quote, displeased the Lord, and so enter Nathan the prophet to remind David that having power is not a license to abuse power. 
Nathan tells a parable evoking David's indignation. David claims the man should be killed for what he's done. And Nathan cries out, but you are that man. You did the same thing. You took the one thing that Uriah treasured. And it's there that David sees his sin. A side point about the story itself. We should not miss that the story itself, written in a time of unquestioned patriarchy, treats Bathsheba like a possession, not a person. For example, after her introduction, she's simply referred to as the wife of Uriah. And in Nathan's parable, she is the lamb. In fact, throughout the whole sordid affair, we never hear from her directly. She has no voice. So this story is blind to its own abuse of power, just as David is blind to his. And I kept my eye out this week, hoping to find some modern-day examples in the news of abuses of power. <laughs> Turns out they're as common as road construction in Denver. There was the cardinal to resign his, who resigned his post, in U, the first one in U.S. history, amid allegations of sexual abuse. Another high-level executive, this time at CPS, accused of harassment. A journalist banned from an open media event at the White House because officials objected to the kind of questions she asked. Paul Manafort's former tax accountant testifying under immunity that she helped him to falsify documents to save hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the list goes on and on and on. And we might hope that those in power would use their privilege to improve the lives of those around them, not exploit them. We might even expect it. For as Jesus said, to those whom much is given, much is required. But with story after story like these, we should probably concur with Lord Acton, the British historian, who said famously, I cannot accept your canon that we are to judge Pope and King unlike other men with a favorable presumption that they did no wrong. If there is any presumption, it is the other way, against the holders of power, increasing as the power increases, for power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Why is it so often that those privileged with power begin to expect that the world will revolve around them and conform to their wishes? Their capacity to disregard the impact of their actions stuns us. In the not-so-long-ago housing scandal that led to the recession, remember that bank executives deliberately targeted poor and minority communities with high-risk loans, loans they knew would almost certainly end in default and foreclosure. But for them, a homeless child was the acceptable cost of their success. Such people, though, are not usually the monsters or more, those with no moral compass that we like to make them out to be. Remember, King David is outraged when he hears Nathan's parable. 
He knows wrongdoing when he sees it. He cannot see it in himself. And while corporate CEOs and government leaders make easy targets and so often deserve it, our scripture today is also a cautionary tale for all of us. Because just like David, we are too quick to see the ways others abuse their power and too slow to see it in ourselves. As you probably know, this church dipped its toe into the muddy waters of immigration debate, of the immigration debate in a very tangible way this week when we provided sanctuary for Jorge. And I'd like to look at the issue of immigration for the remainder of the sermon through that lens of power. And I want to ask you to consider that we as a nation and as individuals have been slow to see our own role in this crisis we now have. There are just over 11 million people in the U.S. without proper authorization. That's about 3.4% of the overall population. And of those 11 plus million, about three-fourths come from countries in Central America and Mexico to our southern border. And at the risk of stating the ridiculously obvious, in almost every case, the United States has more wealth and power than the countries of origin of those crossing that southern border. And in almost every case, those deciding what our immigration policy should be have more wealth and power than those whose lives are so impacted by that policy. Now, the existence of a power imbalance by itself doesn't guarantee that there will be abuse of that power. But our story today suggests that imbalances of power should put us on alert. It suggests that those in power tend to privilege themselves and downplay the impact of those of the, of the, on others of the choices that they've made. It suggests that those in power can be tempted to see themselves as innocent of their own moral wrongdoing. And from what I've learned of this issue, over the last hundred plus years, we have sent very mixed messages to our neighbors to the south at times making it clear that they are not welcome here, but at other times encouraging and even luring them to do the backbreaking work of building our railroads and working our mines in the 1800s, or picking our fruit and building our homes in the 1900s. And in the strictest sense, it is true that no one was forced to come here. But that is only true in the same way that no one forced people in poor neighborhoods desperate to get out to trust bankers enough to sign loans they couldn't afford. True only in the same way that no one forced countless women to endure being harassed or worse by their bosses to keep a job that they needed. True only in the way that no one forced young boys to do what their priest convinced them that God had condoned, true only in the way that no one forced Bathsheba 
to sleep with the king. Force comes in lots of different forms. And the vast majority of those to our south, of course, did not want to be uprooted from the community where they were born and leave everything they had ever known for an uncertain and perilous future. Most of them did so because of economic forces and violent forces that left them with very few options. And no, you and I did not create those forces, not directly, but we have certainly benefited from them. Americans have for years, for generations, enjoyed a whole host of economic gains on the backs of underpaid, if paid at all, undocumented workers. From the cheaper fruit we enjoy in the morning to the cheaper hotels we sleep in at night, and almost every moment in between, we have benefited. And that, I think, is our King David moment. Can we see that? Can we recognize our own participation and therefore our own responsibility in this broken system? I just don't see how we can simply wash our hands and act as if the only blame or even most of the blame for this situation is on those with the least power, those who are the most vulnerable. The juice of all those underpriced oranges we have enjoyed does not rinse away so easily. We may not have intended it or we may not have asked for it, but we did not say no to it. And to not see our own part in contributing to this mess, I fear, makes us as blind as King David. Now, I know for some of you, no matter what responsibility we have, you still have trouble supporting something that might be illegal or supporting someone who might be doing something illegal. And I share that concern. We can't simply disregard laws that we don't like. But without going into the complexity of why providing sanctuary might or might not be legal, I think the more important point is this. There are times when the stakes are high enough and enough people are suffering that the church must take a stand, even if it means standing witness against our own laws, to right a moral wrong. And the more I learn about this issue, the more I am convinced that we are in one of those times. If providing sanctuary makes you nervous, know that it makes me nervous too. But also know this, providing sanctuary isn't something secretive and it isn't about hiding someone, quite the opposite. Sanctuary is about shining a light. The people and the stories of those impacted by immigration have been in the shadows for too long. And when we offer sanctuary, we want people to know about it. We want immigration to know about it. They're the first people we call when Jorge came. We want people to see the real stories because that is what will lead to change. 
And maybe more importantly, when we provide sanctuary, we get to meet people like Jorge and Christina. Beautiful, lovely people with a beautiful, lovely family. A family that is caught in a machine that sucks people up and spits them out. And even if for just one night we were able to help someone who needed it. But maybe most importantly, providing sanctuary puts us, as Clover challenged us to do in her last sermon, in the proximity of suffering. And it is in the proximity of suffering where we will find Jesus or we may not find him at all. For it is in the proximity of suffering where we can experience a very different kind of power. The power of the gospel. The power of mercy. The power of God. with generous hearts, filled with gratitude, and moved by the Spirit, let us receive the morning offering.
with one voice, we pray the prayer of dedication, saying, God, you have so greatly loved us, long sought us, and mercifully redeemed us. Give us grace that in everything we may yield ourselves, our wills and our works, a continual thank offering to you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. All are invited to this table, for the scripture proclaims that they will come from north and south and east and west, and they will feast together as one family. Would you please join me in the great thanksgiving? The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give you thanks, O God, creator of heaven and earth. You formed us in your image and breathed into us the breath of life. When we turned away and our love failed, your love remained steadfast. You have been faithful to us through all generations and continue to speak to us today. We praise you for this table of love you spread in the world as a sign of your love for all people. And so with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name and join in their unending song. continue in prayer. God of hope, we come to you today as your children, desiring to live as children of light, seeking the gift of your presence in our lives. We are filled with gratitude today that this table represents a new day and offers new beginnings. Even in the face of uncertainty, we hang to hope that you make available to us the gift of new chances. Take these gifts of bread and wine and make them for us the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Through these gifts, awaken us, awaken our spirits to be renewed, to be your faithful disciples. And we come to you praying as Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us as, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. On that last night, Jesus shared a meal with his friends 
And at the meal, he took the bread and blessed it, and then he broke it. He said, this is my body that will be broken for you. Whenever you eat this, remember me. And likewise, he took the cup and he gave thanks. He said, this is the cup of a new covenant that I make with you. It is my blood that will be poured out for you. Whenever you drink this, remember me. For Jesus said, all those who come to me will never be hungry again. All those who believe in me will never thirst. For these are the gifts of God for the whole world.
Would you stand as you are able as we say together our prayer of thanksgiving? Gracious God, you have made us one with all your people in heaven and earth. You have fed us with the bread of life and renewed us for your service. Help us who have shared Christ's body and received his cup to be faithful disciples so that our daily living may reflect your presence among us and our love be your love reaching out into the world. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
Jorge and Christina, you are our benediction this morning. You are the good word that we will go out with into the world. May we all be grateful for the gifts in our life and the blessings of God. Go in peace.